five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is a special edition of the Space Cube podcast. In this podcast from the Cassie Astro 18 conference in Quebec City, you'll hear from stakeholders on their perspective of the future of Canada's space sector. The moderator for this session is Jacques Giroux of ABB, who is also the incoming president of Cassie. The panelists in order of who you'll hear from are Sylvain Laporte, President of the Canadian Space Agency, Mike Greenlee, President of MDA, Ewan Reed, President and CEO of Mission Control Space Services, and Kaylee Walker of the University of Toronto. This representation provides you with government, large business, new space or startups, and academia. For more podcasts and stories from Cassie Astro 18, go to spaceq.ca slash tag slash astro dash 2018. Uh, bonjour à tous, puis bienvenue à, à Québec, une de, une de, certainement une de mes villes préférées. Donc, uh, happy that you're, uh, that you're all here in great numbers. Um, Jeff mentioned this morning that we were starting six minutes late. From a few of you this morning, um, I heard that we actually started too early. Um, many of you found it difficult to, uh, to come to our conference at, uh, at 8.15. Um, but glad that you're, glad that you're there. So I'm Sylvain Apporte. I'm the president of the Canadian Space Agency. And um, in the space world, hopefully here in Canada, the Canadian Space Agency is well known. And I thought I would skip a bit of the introduction of what the Space, space Agency is. But I did fly uh, from, from Gatineau to here yesterday and uh, met some, some great people in the, uh, in the airplane, in the taxi. And a few of them never even knew that we had a space agency in Canada. So that kind of made me rethink my idea of an introduction. Um, and not only did they not know there was a, a space agency in Canada, but they actually thought that um, we were currently on Mars and that we were breathing oxygen on that planet. Um, and that we didn't need, you know, any kind of equipment to be there and probably we had cars and whatever else on Mars. So I don't know what planet these people came from, but certainly not the same <laughs> that I belong to. Um, so it was kind of an interesting, uh, interesting conversation and, and quite revealing. Uh, they had, I guess, a ton of questions with respect to, uh, with respect to space. So all that to say, uh, um, just a few words with respect to uh, the space agency. Um, we have about 635 people at the, at the agency. Most of them are located on the south shore of Montreal in, uh, in Saint-Hubert. But we do have a few offices in, uh, in Ottawa, in uh, Washington, in Paris, and we do have a laboratory, the uh, David Florida Laboratory in, uh, in uh, uh, Ottawa as well. Um, our mandate is about the peaceful uh, uh, use and development of space. Um, and for that, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of missions and we do a lot of, uh, of science. So hopefully that kind of wraps it in terms of describing what the space agency is about. Um, because in my introduction, what I do want to convey is that um, you know, these are very exciting times to be working in the, uh, in the space field in a number of areas. And when I look at all of the areas of responsibility where the agency is involved, I don't think that uh, none of them 
um, are not under a lot of, uh, of uh, change right now. Um, so it's a very dynamic environment. Very glad to be uh, to be part of uh, of all of the discussions that are happening, not just in Canada but uh, worldwide. So this is not a, a Canadian agency or a Canadian phenomenon. This level of very high dynamics, um, it is an international phenomenon, and uh, because it's international, the momentum there um, is likely to stay for uh, for a long, long time. And what I mean by by it being a very dynamic environment. Um, if you look at a few examples, so just you know, talking about space exploration, for example, um, we are looking at uh, 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 some very interesting and, uh, and creative discussions with respect to going to the moon and Mars. Um, the project is coming, becoming more and more tangible um, with the nomination of, uh, of uh, uh, Bridenstine at the, uh, the head of NASA. We're now seeing a number of decisions being made. We're seeing progress wanting to be achieved um, as quickly as possible on that front. So it's moving the rest of us in the, uh, in the partnership um, in, a, in a rapid way. So we're seeing a lot of evolutions there. And some of the designs are now starting to take shape, starting to be finalized, starting to be approved by the various committees, the various standards uh, uh, discussions as well. So that's moving forward. And um, we're very, very. Um, interested in, uh, um, in those discussions, particularly with respect to what Canada could contribute to such a program going forward. So as you know, we've issued a number of RFPs over the last 12 to 18 months um, to help us understand what um, uh, Canadian capabilities exist uh, today um, so that we can make the best pitch possible to the government with respect to a potential probable contribution uh, for Canada to, uh, to these endeavors. So that's exploration. Um, when I look at other, other uh, uh, pillars of our, of our mandate, um, Earth observation is something that we're very, very strong on as well. And we're seeing a lot of developments in the remote sensing, Earth observation kind of fields, um, particularly with respect to the, a lot of the commercialization activities that are ongoing over there. So we've got quite a number of uh, of private companies that are putting up uh, or looking to put up some satellites up in space. So that's really going to uh, change the environment for, a, uh, for uh, the various national governments um, because it's going to provide some more options than us having to put uh, our own satellites in, uh, in space. So a lot of interesting developments in that area. Um, and I, of course, I'd be remiss if, uh, if I didn't speak about the LEO SATCOM uh, uh, or the advent of the LEO SATCOM uh, initiatives that are being worked on by quite a number of companies internationally. Um, and I think that uh, the great majority of the folks that don't live in a major urban area are going to welcome um, these new technologies in a few years from now. And I can speak from experience. I live in, uh, in a town called Chelsea, which is you know, only 20 kilometers north of Ottawa. And I assure you, I cannot watch a Netflix movie without seeing the dial tone and, and you know it gives us a natural pause to go and, and get some more chips and coke but um, it gets to be a bit frustrating that close to civilization and not being able to watch a movie without it, it being interrupted because of very low broadband uh, reception where I live so you don't have to be up in the north in fact some people in the north get better service than I do 
Um, but you don't have to be very far from a, from a large city to get pretty awful uh, bandwidth. So I'm looking, I'm personally looking forward to, to the success of these Leo SATCOM uh, initiatives. And I'd like to just conclude with, uh, you know, what we're seeing in terms of activities at the Space Agency in 2018. Um, we've already launched our, uh, our NanoSat uh, competition. So, you know, uh, 13, well, now 15 NanoSats are going to be launched. Some of them are going to be done in, in collaboration. But there's going to be a NanoSat launched by every one of the provinces in three of the uh, ter territories. So we've actually managed to get the three territories to, uh, to collaborate and to, uh, to commit to uh, delivering a nanosat in, uh, in space. These nanosats are all going to be launched from the, uh, the, from the ISS, and we've purposefully tailored the program to ensure that this was all driven um, by the students and with their, uh, their university professors um, so that we can get the most hands-on experience possible out of this. So this is what we call capacity building in Canada. So hopefully, after this, these... Uh, these uh, students will find a way into our Canadian industry or our Canadian universities and they'll be able to brag about having put a satellite in space and having designed and, and built and, and developed these, uh, these satellites. So this hands-on experience will be quite valuable to the future employers. So hopefully that will be, uh, that will be quite, uh, quite helpful. We've also ensured that we gave them just enough funding to get them committed but not enough that they can only rely on the government money because we do want to bring in the entrepreneurs in them. We do want to give them the opportunity to go out there and to market what they're working on and to look at raising some additional funds and, and having conversations with the various uh, administrative, various uh, business people out in their, uh, in their hometown. So, you know, this idea of an entrepreneurial scientist is very strong with us and we need to develop those skills in those engineers and those scientists. So, Part of this exercise or part of this uh, program that we launched is also looking at, uh, at refining those skills for them. So then we've got uh, David Saint-Jacques, um, who is launching to the ISS. Uh, he will be launching now on the 20th of, uh, of December for a six-month-plus mission. So looking forward to, uh, to David's launch um, and uh, to uh, a lot of the experiments that he'll be conducting on the, uh, on the space station. He has about 250, 258 odd experiments that he's going to be personally involved with. And you can imagine that we are going to, um, just like the, uh, the astronaut recruitment program, we are going to have a massive communication and outreach campaign that is going to go with this. We want to bring a lot of pride um, in Canadians to have another astronaut on the ISS, and we have a ton of, of planned activities for students and, and teachers in school. So this will be a very profound, very intense uh, uh, outreach program for us, and we hope to have a, a major impact on, uh, on Canadians as we go forward. And then we've got the Radarsat Constellation mission um, to be launched in the uh, October timeframe. So equipping Canada now with uh, three new state-of-the-art um, Earth observation satellites with all of the um, uh, uh, bells and whistles that comes with that in terms of ground stations and, and an ability to uh, process uh, this data. So 2018 is going to be a very, very busy year for all of us and for, for Canada as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Sylvain. So we'll now turn to Mike for his own introductory comments. Great. Uh, good morning. 
Um, as mentioned, my name is Mike Greenlee. I'm now the group president of um, MDA. Um, in terms of uh, just an update on our organization, for those that, that aren't aware, and I've, I've kept track of all the changes over the last little while, um, MDA is now part of a company called Maxar. Um, and uh, there's four strong companies that are part of Maxar, uh, which include MDA, which includes Digital Globe, uh, Space Systems Laurel, and, um, and Radiant Solutions. Um, so that's about 6,500 people now in a, in a space company doing about um, $2.5 billion a year of business. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty exciting place to be these days, to be part of that, um, to be part of a group that you know, is building satellites, uh, is building ground stations, um, is putting, things, putting missions into orbit and operating them, um, has a large services business now that's doing analytics. Um, uh, for Earth observation, we have about 1,100 personnel in Radiant Solutions that are inside government agencies in the United States providing analytic support um, to all of their all their missions and operations and geospatial intelligence every day. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a very good group to be together to have a full end-to-end um, -end solution vertically integrated available for the international space market. Back here in Canada at MDA, MDA is MDA. I'm the president of it. It remains a Canadian company doing business in Canada, employing Canadians and exporting from Canada, and paying our taxes like good Canadians should. Um, we get just enough money out of the, how did you say it, out of the uh, Canadian government to be committed, but not enough to run a business. So, <laughs> so, uh, so we, we will continue to be entre entrepreneurial and seek exports worldwide uh, from here in Canada. The, um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of trends uh, that are affecting our business these days, I think the, all the same trends that Sylvain was mentioning um, definitely affect us. Um, we have significant opportunities in Earth observation. Um, we're very proud to be part of the RCM launch this year um, and finishing that project and delivering that capability to Canada. Um, but at the same time, when you have those large government programs and those opportunities, then you see the rest of the up and coming commercial base that's coming out in the new space economy, which we'll talk a bit about this morning and lots of dozens of opportunities to adapt those technologies to partner with and work with all kinds of different sizes and shapes of businesses that are now trying to find their way in space. Same thing happens with us on our ground stations business. Um, you know, we have historical ground stations in over 20 countries around the world, which are typically large, multi-source ground stations that, you know, started their journeys with a, a strong life in geo, but now the opportunity is much more vast in terms of adapting those, scaling them down, making them more accessible to uh, a wider audience and a lower price point and new business models so that um, all the range of startups and, and activities going on in Leo can then work with us and still access uh, through different business models that new ground station technology. So we're having to adapt to that. Um, the whole shift from geo to Leo and the, and the proliferation of activities in, in, in low Earth orbit um, for Earth observation and comms in our satellite subsystem manufacturing business is causing adaptation there. Um, so where we might have grown up a, a very strong uh, engineering and manufacturing capacity um, here in Quebec and Montreal um, uh, for that satellite market, it grew up in the, in, the, in the day of geo programs where you would have you know, customers you could count on two hands around the world and you would build components for one or two or three maybe satellites. Um, you know, now you know, we're, we're contracted on OneWeb, for example, for that, uh, for that constellation in low Earth orbit where there's 900 satellites and we're building 1800s antennas for 900 satellites. So that, that's a dramatic shift in terms of um, 
the uh, manufacturing capacity that we have to step up to in Canada. Um, so we're using a lot of increased, uh, you know, fourth generation industrial capacity, advanced manufacturing, um, increased use of robotics um, to be able to assemble high precision, high volume uh, satellite components and participate in, in those markets. So that's a, a trend that's really affecting us. In addition to our ground station shift, which would be you know, ground stations for tasking, you know, multi-source geosatellites to now managing and resource managing full constellations in LEO. Um, I think the on-orbit servicing business, which people have talked about for over a decade and from what I've seen, um, is, you know, on the verge of coming into its own. Um, the, you know, um, acceptance of that as a concept that there would be, you know, various forms of um, satellite and spacecraft put up to go and, uh, you know, service satellites to be able to um, make repairs to them, uh, fix problems, refuel them, reposition them, deorbit them. You know, there's there's a solid list of expectations there in that market space, and um, I've seen even in my short time here the the number of conversations globally of people that would like to talk about, um, especially um, proven space robotics on commercial on-orbit servicing platforms. Um, dramatically increasing. And so I, I really think that that's going to kick in here the next couple of years, just based on the number of conversations and their maturity. Um, so which causes the same shift as we're seeing in other stuff, that transition from historically large institutional government programs to more commercial activity that we see in satellites. You even see it in, in space robotics, where you could kind of grow up in the world of Canada Arm and shuttles and space stations, but now be adapting that for a commercial sale to another firm that wants to run a business doing on-orbit servicing. Um, we're, we're, we're keen to hear continued remarks on space exploration that, uh, that Sylvain was mentioning. That, that's obviously of key interest to us in the world of robotics and deep space stations and rovers and you know, lunar habitation and moving on to Mars and communication networks for that. So um, all of those programs uh, are interest to us worldwide, in Canada for sure. Um, but also internationally. I think that's the other thing that we see as a trend for us is the international pull of the number of countries that what I call now have space ambitions, but not past proven space performance. So for us to have 50 years of space experience in Canada, um, those nations that now have ambition, that see the economic benefits of participating in this new economy that's in orbit around the earth, and they want to get into the game, um, they're very encouraging and welcoming for uh, those of us that have that kind of experience to, to show up and participate in their neighborhoods, uh, in addition to, of course, being strong um, supporters here at home. That's our situation. Okay, thank you very much, Mike. So you will, your turn to present your own organization. Thanks, Jacques, um, and thanks for the opportunity to be here. And for all of you in the room that, uh, that did make it out here uh, pretty early, as Sylvain pointed out, I think that's a sign that uh, despite maybe a, a bit of a lack of, of political support for, for space in this country right now, that there's still uh, a lot of excitement uh, in the community at large. Um, and if Sylvain starts off his talk with, with how excited he is with, with his opportunity, then I think we all should be excited because he's in a, in a pretty tough spot. Um, and I think uh, I'm excited. I think it's an exciting time for, for engineers, for scientists, for business people, uh, for explorers. Uh, I, I think Mr. Musk and his counterparts are rapidly changing the, the established paradigms. And, and in doing so, they're making even more ambitious plans seem credible. So I think like many people in this room here, I was, I was down at the IAC, the International Astronomical Congress in Adelaide last summer, and I, and I saw 
uh, Elon present his plans as to how they were going to pay for the, the BFR, the, the big Falcon uh, rocket. And uh, I think what struck me most about that, that presentation in that day wasn't the fact that there were thousands of industry VIPs you know, lining up for hours to see him, but that as soon as he was done and everybody walked back outside into the sunshine, all anybody was talking about was, was the timelines and, and when is SpaceX going to make it to Mars and you know, is this timetable too aggressive and what about that part, it won't be ready. And there was zero discussion about whether or not it would actually happen. It was just a matter of when. It was taken for a given that SpaceX was going to Mars. And I think that had he given that exact same speech to those exact same people, even three years before, he would have been laughed out of the room. But when you've successfully launched and landed something like 20 first stage rockets in a row, you've now developed a credibility and, and people believe you. And, and that's really important, not just for SpaceX um, and other companies in, in the US, but for all companies that are doing space activities, uh, especially the new space startup kind of companies. Um, it gives us credibility and it gives us opportunity and it, it lets people buy into what we want to do. So it's really changed everything. And it was somewhat in anticipation of, of this almost new space age that, that Mission Control was founded three years ago by um, a group of, I guess, excited young space professionals, um, myself and, and two others that are in the room here, uh, Melissa and, and McKelly, uh, and a few others. And um, Mission Control is a, is a space exploration and robotics company. Uh, our focus is on, on spacecraft operations, uh, onboard autonomy, and, and artificial intelligence. And we're working to develop a, a full-stack robotic control solution. So everything from embedded systems to help spacecraft uh, operate more autonomously on their own uh, to user interfaces to facilitate uh, remote teleoperation. And our technology is designed to increase the safety, uh, the efficiency, and the usability uh, of spacecraft, and ultimately the, the scientific return of missions. Uh, we're also in, uh, committed to inspiring the next generation of explorers uh, to pursue fields, uh, studies in STEM through our immersive Mars simulation experience, uh, the Mission Control Academy program. So we've delivered that program now for uh, full three years since we've been in existence. Uh, we've delivered the program to students on four continents and ranging in ages from about 10 or 11 all the way up to, to postgraduate professionals. And we really look forward to the day when students across Canada, from every community, uh, and really all around the world, can, can turn their classroom into a rover control center and, and get the opportunity to feel what it's like to, to operate a rover uh, on Mars, or almost on Mars, uh, themselves. So Mission Control has benefited from, um, from the support of the Canadian Space Agency, um, both in terms of procurements, uh, but also through grants under the Space Technology Development Program. Uh, which has been, been critical for us uh, in terms of gaining a, an early foothold in the industry. And in, in kind of startup parlance, um, I'm used to saying that Mission Control is, is a pre-commercial entity. Um, but it seems like I'm going to have to up update my terminology these days because uh, we've subsequently been able to uh, commercialize some of these investments that we've received from the CSA and that we've now sold our technology both to companies here, uh, organizations here in Canada, uh, but also south of the border. And that's really exciting for us because, because that represents a commercialization of the, of the commitment and investment that, that Canada made in us as a young company and, and really demonstrates that, that you know, we have a, a solid future uh, to be able to keep growing. So th this panel is about perspectives of the future of, of Canada's space sector. And 
I was specifically asked not only to consider the perspective of mission control, but also take into account and represent, I guess, the perspectives of the smaller, newer, uh, commercially focused space companies, so maybe the space startups. So before I came here, I, I reached out to uh, Mina Mitri, the CEO of Kepler Communications in Toronto, and uh, James uh, Sleifertz, the CEO of Skywatch, um, and, and asked them kind of their opinion so I would be able to come into this discussion with, with more than just a space exploration perspective. And I, I think Kepler and Skywatch fit pretty squarely into the trend of new space that we've been seeing grow now for some time south of the border. Uh, where the majority of, of new companies have a value proposition related to either Earth observation or telecommunications, and, and rapid growth is sought um, and enabled by external investment. And so the, the early, early success, um, at least in terms of financing, uh, which, which to some degree is a matter, measure of success of new companies these days, uh, of, of Kepler and Skywatch, is, is a confirmation, I would say, that the Silicon Valley style of new space has arrived in Canada. You know, it, it is here. And, and more and more often, I hear other positive news uh, related to new space companies in Canada. Uh, I've heard that the, the Creative Destruction Lab in Toronto, uh, which is an established entity that helps innovators transition science projects to high-growth companies, is going to be starting a space stream uh, to attract 25 new space startups to Canada. Um, this organization, not only supported by, by you know, VC and, and other experienced players in, in the Silicon Valley market uh, is also supported by Chris Hadfield. So, so there might be some music as well as uh, money making going on. Um, and, and I think that that's going to facilitate the arrival of, of some, some smart money. Uh, so, so investment that comes with the expertise to help build a large scale company and, and, and evolve and grow from, from a small group of founders or startup into that, into that um, sustainable business. So I think that these and, and other market for forces are going to continue to drive the advancement of new space throughout the world, as well as in Canada. And whether it's in telecoms, EO, exploration, companies like Kepler, Skywatch, and Mission Control will, will continue to strive uh, to grow and prosper. I, I think the big unknown that I see is, is, is the role of government and, and how the government plays uh, in, in this new space future and, and what decisions they take um, in, in, in how that will affect our, how our companies operate and you know, how we, we, whether or not we choose to stay here and how we choose to, to pursue our, uh, our opportunities. Um, and hopefully you know, that, as an introduction, can lead us into some good discussion between the four stakeholders we have up here who I think do represent really, really diverse um, range of industry and, and, uh, and the sector at large. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what everybody else has to say. Thank you, Ewan. I think you set the stage for some of the coming questions. So uh, I'm now turning to Kaylee to provide his own introduction. Okay, and now for something completely different. As Jacques mentioned earlier, my name is Kaylee Walker. I'm a professor in the Department of Physics at the University of Toronto, and my area of expertise is atmospheric science. Primarily, I focus on building instruments and making measurements of atmospheric composition from a variety of platforms, particularly using satellites and high-altitude balloons. One of my main jobs is being the deputy mission scientist for CSA's SISAT mission, and also I've led two balloon projects funded by CSA, the latest one to build and fly a laser absorption spectrometer. We're scheduled to launch this August, and that's what the team is doing back home, getting things ready for back testing this week. Um, I've been involved in space exploration in the didn't-quite-get-to-Mars instrument MATMOS, which was to fly on ExoMars 2016. 
And also I'm involved in more community level as the external co-chair of CSA's Atmospheric Science Advisory Committee. Now compared to my colleagues on the panel, I find it a bit more difficult to introduce my organization's space activities as I'm here supposedly to represent all of academia. <laughs> the academic community in Canada is involved in many aspects of space research and development in this sector. Um, I could start off by telling you that my university is the largest in Canada and we have 70,000 undergraduate students and 18,000 graduate students but that really doesn't give you a sense of what we do in space. It's not the, quite the right metrics. So I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my view of the, the community. Notably, we're incredibly active in Earth observation, including atmospheric physics and chemistry, sun-Earth system studies, and Earth system science. So that's getting down to looking at land, oceans, and ice. We're also very strong in planetary science, space astronomy, and aerospace engineering as well as the areas of life sciences, microgravity, and I'm sure I've forgotten some things, and I for, please forgive me for offending those whose areas I haven't highlighted. Our experience in the academic community spans the full cycle of mission development and execution, from starting off from concepts, instrument and science development, through testing, operations, and utilization. So definitely, Canadian academia is not homogeneous in its interests nor its involvement in space. So at this point, to avoid being too general from here on out, I'm gonna use my own area of atmospheric physics as a basis for my perspective. So within the area of space-based atmospheric science, we currently have three Canadian satellite missions that are led by university teams providing in information on our planet to the community at large in Canada and internationally supporting both science and assessment and policy activities. The oldest of these is MOPIT. Measurements of pollution in the troposphere that's flying on, on, on uh, NASA's Terra satellite. It's launched in late 1999, survived Y2K, and is still providing us with excellent global measurements of carbon monoxide and how this pollutant is transported around the world. Next is the OSIRIS instrument, the optical spectrograph and infrared imager system on the Swedish Odin satellite, launched in early 2001. OSIRIS is providing us with key multi-year measurements that are needed to understand the recovery of the ozone layer and the influence of aerosols in the upper atmosphere. Finally, the youngest of these, and the closest to my heart, is SISAT. Carries the Atmospheric Chemistry Experiment, or ACE, was launched in mid-2003, and it provides measurements of more than 50 different species in the atmosphere. This is the most that have ever been measured simultaneously from space on a Canadian platform using Canadian instruments. These measurements have allowed us to track changes in greenhouse gases, ozone-depleting substances, and pollutants in the Earth's atmosphere for over the past almost 15 years. The operations centers and data processing and validation facilities for the, these missions are based at the University of Toronto, University of Saskatchewan, and the University of Waterloo, with data exploitation being undertaken at more institutions across Canada and around the world. Now I hope you will note that these, these missions are now into their teenage years. Getting a little bit cranky, but still performing well. And they range in age from 14 almost to 19 years of operations. So this brings me to my first point in the general trends influencing our work in academia. When Moppet, Osiris, and SISAT were launched, they were to last between two and five years in order to address specific science questions. However, during our extended lifetimes, 
The focus has moved from having a one-off satellite mission to address a certain set of questions or a specific question to using satellite measurements to build long-term data records to monitor and understand the Earth's climate. This has been quite a significant change in our community. It's reflected internationally in the activities that have been and are being undertaken by agencies such as ESA and NASA to create climate data records, or the so-called essential climate variables. One example of this is the ESA Climate Change Initiative that's creating climate data records for a range of different parameters, including ozone, aerosol, greenhouse gases, and now water vapor, which I'm off to a meeting for next week. Creating these long-term data records brings challenges of cross-calibration and continuity. To study long time frame questions, you need to be able to stitch data together from different satellites and different instruments reliably. It's not just a single mission problem anymore. This need has led to a greater focus on international collaborations in space-based atmospheric science. For a lot of us, it began with working together with our European, US, and Japanese colleagues to understand the quality of data products coming from our Canadian satellite systems. And the collaborations developed further in order to utilize these data and merge them into multi-sensor data records. This international and highly collaborative approach for space is a second trend I see affecting our work in academia. It shaped our community to be well-connected both nationally and internationally. We tend to be a small community, but we have a wide reach. We've been developing these extended collaborations over the lifetimes of SISAD, OSIRIS, and MOPIT. Moving forward, we need to develop follow-on missions and technologies that will continue the long-term data records of atmospheric composition that we need to understand our planet and how it is changing. And over the lifetimes, particularly of SISAT and OSIRIS, the number of satellites that provide complementary measurements has narrowed significantly. It's leading to what uh, many years ago was called a looming gap. Now it's being described as a chasm for this particular set of measurements. That's one, one part of it, but it doesn't mean that we just want to consider con continuing existing data sets that support our scientific studies. Canadian academics are very interested in ensuring that we're getting the best measurements. Now that means looking at new technologies, new methods, new orbits. And we want to do these to do our best to characterize the Earth's atmosphere. So these are innovative ideas that we're bringing together with industry and government partners through technology development and mission concept studies to see how we can further and improve our measurements. For example, we heard that in, in, in the industrial side, thinking from going from geo to leo is where things are going. For us in the academic community, thinking about how we can go to geo to answer different questions and look at different timescales has been happening in the atmospheric community. So thinking about being able to make measurements that we see a particular place more than once over a, over a day, which we can do from geo, allows us to look at things such as the evolution of pollution events. Now for Canada, having an awful lot of its land mass at high latitudes and a particular focus on the Arctic, having a way of making geo-like measurements from high, from, of our country is important. And so this is where some innovative ideas in looking at using highly elliptical orbits and sets of, of measurements are being investigated from, from an atmospheric standpoint and to provide complementary measurements uh, to those that would be made by our partners in other countries, uh, such as the US, in the European Union, and JAXA, as well as CARI. 
So to conclude, I hope I've highlighted three areas uh, or trends for the academic community in the context of atmospheric science, which I think can be extended to, to other communities. The idea of looking at longer term data sets, not just one-offs, uh, to think about our mission records, definitely the importance of collaboration, and the need for continued in innovation to further our utilization of space-based observation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kaylee, and thanks to all the speakers for their introductory remarks. So going back to the theme of the, this panel, to bring in perspect various perspectives on the future of, of Canada's space sector, I think I'd like to bring a first uh, question or, 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 or a new aspect, and that is the, the fact that um, space is becoming increasingly commercial. We say space 2.0 now. Um, so I would like to gather from each of you what is your opinion on how this can change um, and how can this can influence the future of the Canadian space sector. So just to change things, we'll just change the order in which we, we ask the speaker. So I will start with, uh, with Mike now. Okay. Um, so in terms of the world of uh, Space 2.0 and that the sort of the, the new economy that's evolving, we certainly agree that it's becoming more commercial. Um, it's certainly becoming much more active. Um, in terms of the impact of that, um, I mentioned previously in my remarks, the, the business interfaces for us are dramatically changing from um, uh, what, what used to be a lot of a government or institutional type business interfaces, those still exist, but now the increasingly commercial interfaces with international companies of various sizes, um, that, that now becomes much more popular, so it affects the business in terms of the business models that result and the commercial conditions that we do work under. Um, the, um, the, the transition from the low volume kind of geotype work to the high volume Leo type work that comes with all of that activity um, and the commercial side of it, that's affecting our manufacturing, like I mentioned before. Um, we're also seeing some pretty massive shifts in um, uh, people's interest in, in information out of space, not just um, raw data anymore. Um, so as more and more data becomes available, um, it, it's definitely shifting and, and creating more of a business opportunity in analytics and information products. So we, we have many more instances now where we work in partnership with people um, to um, you know, use space data but then analyze it and then just deliver the analytical output that somebody wants. They don't even want to try to process all the raw data we use to try to feed them. They just want the answer. Um, and so the number and different types of companies that you can now work with to provide advanced analytics and information products around Earth observation data, for example, um, is, is proliferating greatly as a result of that sort of new economy that's emerging in space 2.0 and, um, and the business power that comes with that. Um, I, I've never lived the, the transition that went on in, in terms of the, the evolution of you know, companies like Cognos and the like and, and, and business analytics and, and, and bringing the whole world of you know, dashboards and data to business leaders but that, that must have been a similar transition that, that now we see this in space with um, you know, many, many more people just wanting to get that analytical output. The, the other big thing for us is um, the increase in uh, venture capital. Um, I was with some strong um, uh, investors the other day. Uh, they run one of the larger space funds in the world. Um, they have done an analysis that shows that the amount of venture capital in space firms in the last two years exceeds the previous 15 years combined. 
um, in their analysis. Um, and, you know, co companies are looking at hundreds of uh, VC venture capital uh, applications a month uh, to be able to sort through, um, you know, which ones make sense and which ones to invest in. So that's, you know, will turn into dozens a month of people who are picking up money around the world. And so the, the, just this proliferation of companies um, and the complexity that brings in the marketplace is really interesting. Um, it's interesting in terms of the number of firms you can work with now, um, but it's also interesting for companies like ours and um, to figure out you know, what's, what's real and what's not real. There's, it's amazing to me how many conversations we get into around the world with larger corporations and with investors and with the, the larger government procurers um, trying to decide on um, you know, which of these initiatives, of which there are now dozens leading to hundreds all over the place, um, are going to catch and which ones are going to be real and which ones are going to convert from you know, science experiment to business opportunity to sustain business o over time. So that there's a whole new business analysis thing that, that, that comes into play now as you try to assess this market um, that is affecting the, the overall um, business dynamics uh, that I think is really interesting and that we're having to develop new skill sets in um, to be able to figure out who to partner with um, which, which things to take advantage of uh, as we move forward. Thank you, Mike. You win your turn. Thanks, Jacques. Um, maybe I'll just touch on something that you just said, Mike, uh, to start with. And I think it's really interesting you talk about this increase in investment, um, dozens of companies potentially every month getting, getting a, a, an influx of capital to be able to pursue their, their opportunity and turn it, like you say, from a science project into a business. Yeah. And one thing that I think that that all of us in this room need to work on to some degree is, is the acceptance that the, the, the flip side of that is that there's many, many that won't be successful or that will get some funding and then will work for two or three years and then they'll burn out or fight away and die. And I, I don't think that that necessarily is failure. I think that that can to some degree be seen as success. I think the investment that's made in that technology can, can evolve to something new in, in the highly qualified personnel that are involved in the projects and the fact that you know, there's more and more of these ones coming along. There's going to be more that are successful. That's great. You have to take, uh, you have to accept the bad with the good, and that some are going to fail. And and that kind of ties back to another trend in in this new space, uh, space 2.0 phenomena, which is risk tolerance. And and while people talk a lot about being more tolerant to risk, you know, when you've got 900 satellites in a in a one web constellation as opposed to a single uh, geobird, I, I think. We talk about it, but it maybe isn't quite there yet, and, and we need to continue to, to work as a community to, to accept that risk and accept these failures and, and therefore move forward more aggressively as a community. I, I really think that we're in a, a transition period. So uh, I've had kind of debates back and forth with people in the community about, you know, I would almost assert we're, we're space 2.0 isn't new space. It's, it's now the established paradigm. But, but I don't think we are quite there yet. I, I, people go back and forth. And, and ultimately, private investment is ramping up. Um, and, it, and it's on track. I mean, we're, we're still lagging the U.S., but, but that's not, not probably to be surprised about. Um, but, it, but it's coming, and it's growing, and, and you know, Mike just, just confirmed it with his comments as well. Um, and in, in an age when, when the success of a startup really in the early terms is, is defined by how much funding they, they measure, um, the more and more of these that are, quote-unquote, successful by getting this funding, you know, the more overall success we've got in the industry, which, which is a really good thing. Um, you know, another example or, or, you know, the big, a big part I see of, of what Space 2.0 
is, is this idea of, of you know, government as a customer procuring data, um, like you said, rather than, than you know, a, a spacecraft. And, and that model is, is fundamentally different. And it's not just governments. It's all sorts of companies that are starting up that ha- you know, can do great things with huge amounts of data. Uh, AI, machine learning, all these, these technologies need tons of data to be able to train their algorithms and test their algorithms. And then they need lots of data to be able to extract the information that they need, which is what they sell. So they're not selling, selling the spacecraft, and they're not selling even the data. They're selling the information that they get out of it at the end. And, and that is the, the kind of new paradigm. And, and I think we, we're kind of part of the way there in Canada. And some of those examples have, you know, there are examples of that being the new model. But there's also still examples of the old model. And, and we're kind of in that transition period. But I think that because we're in that transition period, there's a really big opportunity for companies to disrupt. Um, you know, at, at some point, new space is going to become old space, and, and the disruption will have largely occurred, and the opportunity won't be as present. And, and whether that is in 50 years or in five years, I don't, I don't know, but that, that will come at some point. So I think right now is, is a really big opportunity. And, and you know, as for an, to, to use Mission Control as an example, you know, we are trying to look at space exploration in, in some new ways. So we're looking at concepts like software as a payload or, or downstream space exploration. So these are ideas we've kind of formulated and pushed since our inception um, and are things like using robotic telemetry archives to, to conduct science or to leverage existing sensors with new algorithms to solve current problems. And... I think, like I said, these, these opportunities are, are they're still growing right now. There's more and more of them out there. There's more opportunity to disrupt kind of as we speak. And so I think now is the time to get on board, you know, conduct, create that disruption, and then, and then see where we, we end up in, in a few more years. Thanks, Ewan. So, Kaylee, what does that mean for a university space zero? Well, I see this as a place for both opportunity and challenge. There's definitely an advantage of having more routes to get Earth observation instruments into orbit. Also, the ideas of having constellations of instruments or constellations of satellites providing us with increased coverage both give us some some really neat opportunities in thinking in terms of increased access. Now, the utility is going to depend on the questions that we ask. Being a scientist, university professor, it always comes back to, so what was the point of what we were doing? Now we think about that in terms of questions, but we also can think about it in terms of services. And we need to match the platform and the solution to make the best use of the resources for our purpose. So the way I looked at this was to think in terms of some questions or some some ways of thinking. So for a particular problem, what's our goal? Is it a science experiment? Is it a science data set? Is it a policy data set? Is it a public service? Or is it a commercial enterprise? Then thinking about, well, if we want to do this and have this constellation idea, how small can we make our instrument and still be able to provide the data quality that we need? Because at a certain point, maybe we get towards having a flying widget, which is neat for training HQP, but does it get us what we want to do, and is it the best use of our resources? Um, So questions about whether it's nanoscale, microsat scale. Coming at this from, from, from a calibration and validation background, it's hard enough to keep calibration between one satellite and a friend. If you had a, a constellation of 20 different instruments, I, my mind is boggling at that challenge. How do we do that? We need to come at, at, at this development 
in a way that we're able to keep that cross calibration between measurements. Because if we're trying to measure greenhouse gases and we're using it for policy, just because the instrument that's over your location happens to be measuring high versus the one that's over someone else's location measuring low, shouldn't mean that you should be paying a higher penalty than them. So the more instruments you have, the bigger this problem becomes. And so maybe we need to, to think about, about ways of merging ideas. So there's also the question of data density. Just because we could put up 20 microsats, um, does it give us the observation time series we need? Particularly on a policy level or on a service level, those have very different time scales. If it's a service that's going to tell us about what air quality is going to be tomorrow, your calibration issues are going to be different than if you're trying to build up a time series that's going to go generationally. So I'm thinking, starting to think about the missions that we need to keep the legacy that I've worked on going into the future. So how could we use new space to extend our time series and, and, and get the most out of our measurements? And this is where maybe we need a combination approach, that the types of things we've been doing primarily with government funding can be used in, in concert with new space ideas. So one colleague of mine suggested, well, what if we have one big satellite and a series of acolytes? Does that get us our cross-calibration? Does that get us the data set that we need? So I see this as, as an area of a lot of promise, and we need to work out some of the, the little niggly problems to get us the data sets that we need to get where we want to go. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kaylee. So uh, for you, Sylvain, does that change the role of, of the CSA, the, the fact of the rise of, uh, of new space? Um, well, in fact, uh, I hope it does. Uh, not as much the role, but more the way that we that we approach um, executing our, our mandate. Um, for me, Space 2.0 is about uh, a new level of uh, of, uh, of activities that requires everyone um, to dial up their game. Um, I see Space 2.0 as a, a reality that is here to stay. It will bring about um, substantial change for the long term. And if you're not sharp and you're not on top of your game, well, as, when, as was mentioned previously by you, and you know, you're not going to survive. Um, but I see Space 2.0 as a, as a systemic opportunity as opposed to a battle of, of you know, new space versus old space. Um, you know, the old space folks have been around for a long, long time, and they've learned to adapt. And they are adapting, and they will adapt. Um, so I've heard forums where, you know, new space is going to move old space aside and all that kind of stuff. Well, I don't see that happening. Um, I see what's happening as uh, the fact that there's been an injection of new ways of doing business, new business models, new approaches, new um, things that used to be reserved to government now being commercialized. And that's required everyone to sharpen their pen. And, you know, I see that as being the status quo going forward. So I welcome new space. It's going to require all of us, including government, to look at the new, the new reality and look at how we can adapt to, uh, to benefit from it. Um, clearly, from a government perspective, where we are, you know, a large customer, um, you know, I see, I see the, the Space 2.0 as an opportunity to do a lot more things with the same dollar because the cost of putting a kilogram in space is, is, is going down all the time and will likely continue to go down. 
a lot of the launch companies are, are, are actually now providing even uh, uh, cheaper ways to get and put things into space. So that means that we spend less on that aspect um, than we did in the past, and we put more of it on you know, a different diversity of missions or, or more expensive uh, missions going forward. As Ewan, uh, Ewan also mentioned, um, it does bring about a new uh, approach to how we look at satisfying, uh, say, government mandates. So in the past, where we could have been tempted to believe that only government is in space, so therefore if we have a new need, we must put a satellite in space, uh, today the reality is much different. So let's not get tempted at first glance to, to go and put some new hardware into space. If someone else on the commercial side has already taken that risk and is looking at leverage, leveraging the cost of that operation over multiple customers, government being one of the many customers. So that whole idea of now buying the data um, in, in the future, buying the data as opposed to owning a satellite is going to be quite interesting. Now that being said, and back to my comment about old space and new space, the idea of buying data instead of owning a satellite is not new. In fact, we've done that for RadarSat 2, and yeah. we've been doing that for many years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, probably groundbreaking in its time, but it's something that's been very, very successful um, to both MDA and to uh, into the government. Um, and looking at, you know, what Space 2.0 will do is it will probably give us even more opportunities to do uh, and to engage into more strategic relationships and more, you know, innovative PPPs, uh, public-private partnerships as we, uh, as we go forward. So I see Space 2.0 as a real great opportunity. Um, fully embrace it, welcome it with, uh, with both, uh, with open arms. Um, and look for the opportunities that I think are going to be beneficial to the space program, but also to uh, Canadians at large. Okay, thank you very much. Um, my next question to, to, to each of you is uh, basically, what is in your view the place for Canada in the, in the space sector in general? And I would like now to start with you and go first. Okay, so I, I kind of take that question to some degree to be focused on, on what government's role should be in terms of what's the place for Canada. Um, and the reason I, I, I take it that way is, is as we've seen, um, private companies, industry will do what they think is best to achieve their objectives. So an example is, is MDA and, and, and the, the lot, lots of changes we've seen there. And like you say, it's a, a strong, proud Canadian company, but, but there's been changes in the structure, and that's because that's what you need to do to adapt. And I think that applies to new space, to old space, big companies, small companies. We're going to do what we need to do to survive. Um, and so in terms of where does Canada go, you know, what, what, what leadership do we need? That, that's something that I think that, that has to come from government. And I, I think... First off, it's easy, so I'll just say it. I, I think definitely the government needs to establish the appropriate regulatory framework to facilitate what are rapidly evolving business models of new space. So I think you know, without government action you know, quickly and in the near term, new space companies may have to adapt and go elsewhere if, if this is not the right environment for them to operate. I think, but beyond that, beyond regulation, Canada really has an opportunity to be a bold leader in space. I mean, I think we, we have all the capabilities, both in industry and in academia, and kind of sitting on both sides of me here, to, to lead and, and uh, operate 
a, a completely bold and novel space mission you know, as a country, uh, something that, that could inspire our citizens. And, and really, at, at, at this time of, of kind of international strife around the world, I, you know, bad news every, every day on, on, on uh, you know, coming from everywhere, I, I think we could, we could use that. We could use a little inspiration in our lives. And, and you know, a big, bold mission doesn't necessarily need to be space exploration. You know, it could be telecoms. It, it could be EO. You know, it could be whatever falls onto RCM. Um, but, but I'll throw out a couple of examples on the space exploration side because Mission Control is a space exploration company and because I think these are ways that Canada can, can signal to the world and, and can inspire the next generation here at home. Um, so one thing I, I saw this morning on Twitter, um, a, a tweet from uh, Monsieur Leclerc um, about a Mars sample return fetch rover. And, and I think that's, that's amazing. That's spectacular. If, if Canada builds a rover that is involved in the process of bringing back our first material from Mars, um, other than, than you know, meteorite debris, I, you know, that would be an amazing coup. You know, and that would position Canada to be able to continue to have a seat at the table in terms of guiding overall international space policy and space objectives. I think if we continue down the road that we've sort of slid over the last few years, we, we have less credibility in terms of guiding you know, the international community in terms of space. So you know, I would also look at, at the cancellation of the Resource Prospector mission in the U.S. as a potential opportunity for Canada. Um, I think there's lots of opportunities out there for us to do something big and bold. Um, and I think we need to, to, to sit on or, or leverage our, our main strengths. You know, and when I look at Canada, I think of, of science. We just had a great announcement in the budget for all sorts of science. And, and I, I'm excited about that. I think it's excellent. Uh, I, I wish it was, it was coupled with the same amount of money for space. Um, but nonetheless, you know, let's think about it from the science perspective. And let's think about this government's um, interest in the environment. Well, right now we've got companies like iSpace, Deep Space Industries, Planetary Resources, Moon Express, and on and on and on and on, as well as governments like Luxembourg and other places, who are talking in the very near-term or medium-term going to mine asteroids in the moon. Well, when we're going to go up there and do that, who's thinking about sustainable exploration? Who's thinking about the environmental side of things? Maybe that's a place that Canada can, can take a, a role, a leadership role. But I think we can only do that if we actually are involved and have a seat at the table and aren't leaving it purely up to, to, um, to private industry to support. So I think the, the, the Canadian CubeSat Challenge is, is a, you know, for the students um, is an excellent program, and that's going to fill this pipeline of talent that we need. And now we need to evolve that bigger to a, a kind of a government and industry level uh, mission and, and something that will inspire the world. Thank you, Yuan. So Kaylee? That's a little bit hard to follow, isn't it? <laughs> I like your vision. I, I agree that we need to think in terms of our strengths and we need to think about where we can go to make the biggest bang for, for our buck. We have this great heritage, we have lots of expertise and we have experience, particularly coming from where I do on space science and engineering side. And if we use that to identify what we can leverage and where we can go, I think we've got a lot of possibilities. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples particularly from the CISAT and OSIRIS mission perspective. Right now, these missions are unique in the world. Their data set that they provide is making a significant contribution internationally. Uh, CISAT was launched with 14 species that it was its baseline for measuring. At the moment, I believe 
more than half of them are not measured by any other satellite sensor. So we're providing a very significant contribution. It's because we measure some esoteric things, but they provide the background that we need to understand the change in our atmosphere. We also use a technique that's called limb sounding. And limb sounding provides us with profile information about our atmosphere. In the general space sense, uh, from the other agencies, a lot of focus, particularly in Europe, uh, has gone towards services that require high spatial density of measurements. Limb sounders don't always provide that. And so the focus has been away from providing this critical set of measurements. So right now, we're, we're holding up our end. But there are no new missions using this technique in development anywhere in the world. And so I think this is an area where we could make a strong and recognize contribution to the international data pool. Um, we have, have a, a great pool of data, particularly in the atmospheric side, where it, it's, it's not the same uh, model as RadarSat. The Canadians put in their data in one area of atmospheric science so that the weather people can take out data in another area. And so this really fits together in, in having a, a, a contribution that we make internationally that allows us access into that. And so I think we need to continue to think about how we continue that, particularly for academics, where we don't have high degrees of funding. So paying for the data that we need becomes difficult. And so thinking about how we, we, we manage that in our, in our new space slash old space context is going to be quite important. So I'm going to leave it there and thinking about a couple of those different areas and how we, how we can think big and go from there. Thank you, Kaylee. Sylvain, what is your own response? Well, you know, when I see the question, what is Canada's place in space, there are many ways to, uh, to answer that question. And I'd like to take the dimension of the international perspective. Um, also because uh, I've, I've accumulated uh, dozens of, uh, of international conferences and, and seen firsthand um, how Canada is received um, by our, our, our various international partners. And I'd like to share that with you. I think what's, what's very, very important for us to realize that um, Canada is in a leadership position for space, point blank. Um, if you ever doubt that, uh, start talking to your international colleagues and they will echo um, the same sentiment that, uh, that I have uh, observed and, and witnessed internationally. Canada is a trusted partner and we are sought after. Now, why is that? You know, we take a lot of pride in, in knowing that. Many of you have echoed that um, and, uh, and uh, uh, shared that opinion with me. But um, why is that? Well, uh, I can tell you that it's certainly because of the success we've had in a number of missions, but fundamentally um, what makes this country so interesting from a space perspective is the depth that we've got, right? So we have very, very strong internationally recognized universities, post-secondary <laughs> institutions with a fantastic cadre of, of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, professors and, uh, and researchers in those universities. That gives us depth. We've got tremendous experience and very successful Canadian companies as well. We've got great associations and we've got the CSA that also contributes to that. 
right? So when you look at what makes Canada so great and why are we in a leadership position, it's all of those things put together. So all of us in one way or another contribute to, uh, to that, uh, that global success. So we are sought after. Um, I'll, I'll share with you uh, something as, uh, as uh, um, you know, uh, particular or, or tactical as a, a traditional schedule when I go to an international conference just to illustrate um, you know, Canada's position here. I would have somewhere in the vicinity of 40 to 50 meetings in a period of three days. It's, it's kind of a marathon when we go to these things. Um, of those, the majority are, country, are countries that are looking for opportunities to collaborate with Canada, right? The other, the other meetings that I would tend to, uh, tend to request would be where we see uh, an opportunity for you know, a Canadian firm or, or a Canadian university to participate in something that other country is doing. And when we do request a meeting with that country, um, we never get a no answer. We always find a way to, uh, to meet with them. So when you look at that kind of a, of a schedule makeup, it speaks volumes to the fact that Canada is very, very popular and a sought after uh, uh, participant or, or partner in these, uh, in these meetings. And when we do get approached to partner, um, clearly our track record in terms of uh, what we've contributed for the different missions serves us well. We've always delivered delivered successfully and usually on time, if not ahead of schedule, as was the case with, uh, with James Webb. Um, but we also are very sought after for our, our scientific community. So in some instances where um, we could not or, or uh, didn't desire to be part of the hardware providing uh, team, uh, we do get requested very often to, uh, to see scientific uh, uh, collaboration from uh, from some of our eminent scientists in, uh, in Canada. So one way or another, we find our way involved into um, many of these, uh, these different missions. One thing that's also very interesting, you're, you're all aware that you know, the number of countries involved in space is growing uh, very, very fast, up to 80-some countries now at, uh, at last count and, uh, and growing. Many of those countries are, are developing uh, economies, and um, invariably, most of them come to Canada for coaching, for advice, uh, for con consult and, uh, and whatnot. They see us as one of those approachable countries that you can go to and you can get some help and you can get some support from Canadians. And it's something that we've been encouraging internationally, this leadership role that we've got. And again, in a very Canadian way, very quiet, but you know, very unassuming, very quiet, but very effective and it's been in high demand out there. So in terms of our place you know, in space, um, we're up there. We're, we may not have the, the budgets, we may not have the economy that some of our larger partners would have, but we clearly are a very influential player out there. Thank you, Sylvain. So Mike, what's the place for Canada in your view? Um, I, I agree with the comments that Canada is in a position to be a leader. Um, Canada is a leader, I agree with that historically, um, in my view of these things. Um, third country into space um, is in the inner club as a result of those decades of being part of that international community. You see that everywhere you go when you travel around, um, when you travel around the world. Um, I think that the, you know, the key thing at the moment is to try to see to what extent we, 
we can kind of hold that position going forward. Um, you, uh, you mentioned that the, 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 the transition um, between old and new space, that we're kind of in this transition, and we are. So we still need um, institutional projects. We still need larger missions. Um, those tend to be government funded uh, to be able to engage the base. While that base now has even newer opportunities to start to participate in more commercial activity in space, but we probably need both sides. At a time when there's 80 countries uh, setting up uh, interest in space, um, and they are coming to Canada for advice and guidance for sure from the government, they'll also come to Canada for their industrial capacity and smart people. Um, and so, you know, folks like us would be in conversations with those countries. Um, to say, you know, to what, you know, being invited to come and set up shop and, and extend our reach to participate in their space programs because they want to get into space and they, they do recognize and, and welcome the, that experience. Um, for me, it's a critical time to make sure that we are still continuing our legacy of doing solid anchor, larger programs and missions that do um, uh, develop more of a strong business base than just the uh, government leadership and academic and science leadership base, which is super solid. I agree with that um, all the time. So it, it, it is a critical moment. I think everyone's kind of watching that space right now to see, you know, um, Savannah mentioned when he started speaking that the world of space exploration is re returning to the table to figure out, you know, how's everyone going to play together? And as we go into deeper space exploration, um, it'll be really interesting for, for Canada to see how Canada shows up in, 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 in that adventure. Um, it, and, and for me, it, it's, it's interesting that um, for, for Canada, it is a source of pride. And um, uh, when you talk to Canadians, for those that are aware of space, there is that awareness issue that somebody I mentioned on his flight here this morning um, or yesterday. But those that are aware do have a, lot, a strong source of, of pride. It's interesting to see the other countries in terms of their, their understanding of the economics of having a strong business based on space. The, the UK space strategy, for example, is is, is, is not based on space sovereignty. It's not based on, um, um, you know, key aspects of a space exploration or an astronaut program. It's, it's based on economic development. Like when you talk to them, like they want to create an economy in their country because it's high quality jobs in a new economy that's emerging in space and they, they want to be in and they're going to build a space strategy based on that. It's interesting for me to bump into the number of countries that are talking about that and really seem to understand that. I think we have to work a little bit stronger, probably as a gang, to make sure that Canada writ large, um, you know, understands the the economic value of a strong space economy at a time when there is such a surge coming in economic activity that will be going on in, in orbit around the Earth. So I think that we have to help people understand that. We have to have the government anchor programs to hold us there, and uh, and then continue to work as a community to take advantage of that. Thank you very much. The last uh, subject I'd like you to touch on is the subject of collaboration. So how does collaboration have to develop in the future to take advantage of the opportunities and, and, uh, and proceed and improve uh, our performance in the space sector? So for that uh, subject, we will now start with Kaylee. Okay, thanks Jacques. I'm glad that I get to start off the discussion here because I th this is a topic very dear to my heart. I, th I think one, one aspect we come at it as within academia, we have such a breadth of experience and expertise that we're really not just a set of data users. Most of us really like to stick screwdrivers in things, look under the hood of, of any code just to see what's going on. That's what makes us scientists and engineers. 
And one of the things that I think we can benefit from is to try and leverage that much more strongly than we already have. As I mentioned before, within the ac Academic Atmospheric Science Committee community, we have three missions currently in operation, and they have been uh, for more than a decade and a half. So let's think about what we can do with this experience in mission development and instrument test, taking us all the way through to data utilization, and figure out how we make the partnerships that we need to utilize this. We got to this position where we are in academia for a lot of us through collaboration with industrial and government partners. That's how we got our missions into space. As we look towards the future ideas, a number of us have been involved in STDP and capability demonstration projects. You're gonna hear about some of them this week, um, as well as concept and mission development studies with partners both within Canada and outside. And so it's a matter of taking this existing expertise and experience and really pushing on what we can do because we want to further the overall goals for Canada in space. Now, I think another component of this is not just collaboration within Canada, but is the need to do this internationally. As Sylvain mentioned, Canada is often uh, approached to be a partner in things. Uh, throughout our, our collaborations, both nationally and internationally, it's often the academics who are at some meeting who start talking about some idea and then that sort of goes out to, oh, we have this possibility, we have that possibility. And so making sure that when we find these opportunities or there's the possibility of an opportunity arising, which I know sounds very convoluted, but often we know that's how it works, thinking about how we build a system that allows us to capitalize on them. Often different countries and different programs have very different timelines. And so making sure that when an opportunity arises, that we've got partnerships in place, we've got access to the different components we need to be able to step up and say, yes, Canada is willing to do this, Canada really wants to do this, and this is what you need from us because your mission will succeed because of that. So I'd like to throw it to the others. Um, collaboration is a subject that we, we often talk about on, uh, on panels and there's a, there's a good reason for that is because it's absolutely critical. It's critical in many, many industries, but I think I've never seen, having worked in many industries, um, clearly it's, it's more essential in space than other industries that I've seen. Um, is it a question of, of, of maturity or not? I, I don't know. What I do know is that space, given its, uh, its very demanding uh, uh, situation, requires the collaboration of, of many folks and, and many entities for it to be successful. Um, so when I look at, at collaboration, you know, you, you do it for some economic reasons, that's for sure. And when I look at, you know, historically where the CSA has invested a lot of money, we always look at the leverage effect of, of collaboration. Um, in many cases, uh, we cannot afford to be the, the single uh, provider for a particular mission. Um, so then we have to look at how can we leverage our international participation. And we do that for cost and, and risk sharing reasons, and I think that's very logical. But another aspect that's also just as important um, of, uh, with respect to collaboration is the diversity that it brings, right? So, um, you know, space is bigger than, than one individual, bigger than one company, bigger than one country. Um, you've heard that very often. We need to find 
the international collaboration opportunities to be successful out there. And I think that diversity of that, the diversity that this collaboration brings is essential to, um, to our success. And with diversity comes you know, different approaches in terms of problem solving or different approaches and ways of, of looking at problems and, and different areas of creativity. So when you do collaborate, particularly from an international perspective, that diversity is absolutely essential going forward and it brings about a tremendous value add to a point where um, when I speak to, to students, um, I invariably get the question of, you know, what would be some of the skills that would make a student successful in terms of their career in space? And I do know there's quite a number of students in the room today, so uh, welcome to, uh, to the session. So, but I'm not addressing this just to the students. I think it's something I want to, uh, to share with uh, even those of us that have gray hairs in the, uh, in the room here. But, you know, typically when they ask me how can one be successful in space, I say, you know, you need to master three skills. At the beginning of the career, you need to master your technology, whatever that is, right? You need to demonstrate that you are very strong in your area of, uh, of expertise. So that goes without saying. Um, but then as you develop that skill and you get a bit more senior, you have to develop your marketing skills, right? The greatest idea without you being able to sell it is not gonna go anywhere. And I'm talking about selling it, if you're a junior person, a junior engineer, a junior scientist, selling your idea within your company, within your organization is hard enough. Try selling it to international partners. So the whole marketing aspect needs, is a skill that needs to be developed. But really the third um, element that I bring about, which is germane to the subject, is all about collaboration, right? As an engineer, as a young scientist, you need to develop those skills. And collaboration is hard. We've all been there. We've all had to work with people that, you know, even in our own company, we've had to work with people that we don't like. But they add something. They add value to your project. So you need to find a way um, in your human behavior um, to eke out the benefits of working with everyone in your own firm so that as you grow more and more senior in your firm and you start to collaborate with other firms and you start to collaborate internationally, those skills will serve you well. So clearly collaboration needs to be one of those skills that you, uh, that you develop. And I think the fact that we talk to students that way because we see it as one of the fundamental development pieces for their success, it, all applies to, it also applies to, uh, to all of us. Thank you, Sylvain. So Mike, I think you have some very specific things to mention about collaboration. Sure. Um, it's obviously essential and important for us. Um, for me, um, as being a bit of a larger company in the sector, um, you get into different levels of collaboration. Um, so I feel like you know I have to collaborate with my customer base. I have to collaborate um, with with uh, Sylvain and his team to be able to even help you know shape and cause the future of programs in Canada or with General Wales and Director General Space and his community as they try to implement strong, secure, engaged, and the very strong space elements of that to try to, to realize that. So I think that's interesting. When we then go international though, I think it's there's a, a, a collaboration that occurs there in terms of making sure that what we're doing with other countries is, is in line with the interests of Canada and those collaborations so that we don't disrupt those, that we only encourage them and enhance them. 
Um, when we have programs in Canada, there's obviously the natural collaboration that occurs where corporations get together uh, and or with academia to build teams of people to go and go after a program. I think that's been the MDA's history. Um, in the industrial collaboration side, it's really when there's a program that needs a team, you build one and you go. Um, but now I think with the, the evolution of this sort of newer economy in space and the, uh, you know, the realization of the bench strength across Canada, I think we're going to change ourselves a little bit more to emerge a bit further um, in terms of having more persistent collaboration from a, a market perspective. So uh, as part of me coming into MDA, one of the things I'm going to start to do is create this thing called MDA Launchpad, which will be a, like a small to medium enterprise interface to MDA. And then there'll be a full-time senior leader that's responsible for that who has direct access to me. And so that this will be like a senior person that knows everything going on in the company so that there is a place where anybody from the outside can come and interact with you know, our larger corporation uh, to be able to talk about what they're trying to accomplish or you know, how they could collaborate with MDA, how we could help work together back and forth to create a bigger opportunity. I think that's important now, especially with the, with the diversity of, uh, and the increasing numbers that we talked about in these uh, small to medium enterprises. So, so we're gonna try to like change our structure and interface as we go through the summer and, and get this thing staffed and launched by the time we come into September um, so that we've got that, that persistent interface to, to small to medium enterprise to include in our projects or our programs. Um, um, moving forward because there's there's so much you're doing on the bigger programs you can cause a lot more collaboration that you don't necessarily need the team on the program but if I think if you set yourself up well in the marketplace then you can do that because you're always designing a new capability we're always launching something somewhere within MDA or Maxar there's always rideshare opportunities we're building ground stations in all these countries somebody's always building an algorithm that we could you know have as an upgrade on our ground stations or what have you so i think we have to open up that portal and staff it and make it persistently available um, to get more collaboration because if we don't structure it then it, it won't happen on a systematic basis thank you mike i think that's a great initiative so ewan you're at the final word okay I, I think this one is, makes it easy for me to be the final word because everyone has said all the, the great key points. Uh, I, I'm in 100% agreement. Um, I think for, for space in particular, like Silma says, uh, collaboration is essential. And uh, you know, another thing that, that is worth pointing out is that for niche players, um, which I would say Mission Control, uh, you know, my company is, is very much a niche player. We're, we're not trying to do everything. We're not like SpaceX that's vertically integrated or now uh, Maxar that's vertically integrated. And so we inherently need collaboration to to survive and and to function and I think Canada's really good at it um, you know that that's demonstrated like Sylvain said in terms of you know his going around the world and meeting people all over the world that want to work with us and that's uh, you know I think because we we are so good at this and that we have these uh, programs in place to, to have all the levels of the space sector working together and and I think we we need to continue to leverage this to do more and, and I think we are um, a couple examples that have come out fairly recently that I would kind of argue are more in the in the collaboration domain than in the the procurement or grant domain are the innovation solutions Canada program uh, or the ideas program uh, on the strong secure engage side and you know these are ways where government can collaborate 
with industry through an investment to allow them to grow a technology and, and then subsequently commercialize it, much like an SBIR program in, in the U.S. And, and I think these are the kind of mechanisms that that really encourage companies to to innovate. And uh, and of course, on the university side, I think it's absolutely essential uh, as a company we. I don't think we've ever undertaken any technology development project without a partner at a university. And you know, overall, I'd say Canada is a great place to, to start a new company. And, and a big reason is, is for the potential for collaboration. And, and I mean, obviously, it, it shouldn't be a surprise, but I'm extremely excited to hear about MDA's new launch pad. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that, um, that we like to hear as a niche player that you know, would love to work with some of the bigger, the bigger companies. Okay, thank you very much. I think this panel has been excellent at keeping time. (laughs) That's a goal. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spacecube. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.